0: Genesis chapter number 43, here in our midweek Bible study and prayer time, I draw your attention down, Uh, really we'll start at verse number 8, and Judah said unto Israel his father, send the lad with me, we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones, and I will be surety for him, of my hand shalt thou require him, If I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. And their father Israel, verse 11, said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits of the land in your vessels, carry down the man a present, a little balm, and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand. And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand, Peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, and go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's look uh, down at verse number 26. Continuing in the story, once Joseph has his brothers come back and he's having dinner with them, Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, bowed themselves to him, to the earth, and he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spake is he yet alive? And they answered, "Thy servant, our father is in good health; he is yet alive." And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, "Is your younger brother of whom is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me?" And he said, "God be gracious unto thee, my son." And Joseph made haste, haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn, According to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marvelled one at another, and he took and sent messes unto them from before them, from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. Read this last phrase with me here, if you would. And they drank and were merry with him. Lord, I pray that you will speak to us tonight, according to Thy word, that we would be able to learn and glean from the truth of Scripture here tonight, that we would be encouraged and comforted, that our fears would subside, and that we would understand the graciousness and the mercy that we've been given, that one day we'll be able to sit around the table with our Lord Jesus Christ and sup with Him. Lord, vanquish all fear and doubt. And forgive us of our shortcomings. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to seek Christ in this tonight. Thank you for the story of Joseph, thank you for your people Israel, and thank you for the salvation that comes through your holy name. We pray that you'll help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This is quite a story, is it not? Now Genesis chapter number 43 parallels in many ways chapter 42. So if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, the structure that we studied in chapter 42, then you can take and uh, apply that to chapter 43 and see a lot of the same narrative, just different speakers and different different uh, conversations that are being had. But this is a transitory chapter. We are leading up to a, a climactic point between Joseph and the reuniting with his brothers and ultimately with his father. And this is again God's providential means of fulfilling his prophecy to Abraham about a 400 years stay in a foreign land. And so this is God using Joseph to get Israel into Egypt for that 400 years to where he will eventually then bring them out by a strong arm and the mighty exodus under Moses. And so as we think about Joseph having gone through everything that he went through at uh, the hand of his brothers from being thrown into a pit because of their envy and jealousy, I want you to note tonight that now things begin to come to a head for them. It's been probably two years, I would guess, since the brothers left in chapter 42. And they've gone back now with the provisions they have. They've, They've made it a couple of years now, but things are beginning to wane and uh, the cupboards are beginning to look pretty bone dry. And they go, and there's hunger, I'm sure. There's concern because they've rationed everything. I'm sure that, that they rationed everything to the nth degree that they could, and, and now they're in a, in a pressing situation because if they're going to continue to live, they've got to go back. I think Joseph understood how this would unfold I don't know if he understood how long it would take them to get back home and back to him. So now, this whole time, they've been only ten brethren because Simeon was left back with Joseph. I gave you some ideas about what I thought might entail Simeon's detaining and how Simeon had quite a history and a rap sheet about him. Uh, again, the Scriptures don't specifically state that, but I wonder if Simeon wasn't the one that was at the forefront of Joseph being, being uh, maligned by his brethren when he was 17 years of age thrown in the pit. Now, some other things we need to note is that Judah will be the one now that begins to ascend to a prominence in leadership among his brethren. Reuben begins to decrease and Judah begins to increase. And as Reuben had stood forward before his dad and encouraged dad to let them take Benjamin down, and Reuben went so far as to put his own son's neck on the line and say, you can take my son's if I don't bring your son back, Uh, Reuben, uh, all his leadership has basically turned into complaining. When they were before Joseph, he just reminded them, didn't I not tell you? So that's something to keep an eye on with any kind of leadership This is just a general application. When things start happening and leaders don't take responsibility like they should and they start saying, I told you so, I told you so, and they start complaining about everything that's wrong, you don't have someone who is really going to be a fit leader to take responsibility to assess the situation and be able to navigate forward from that point. So Reuben begins to diminish and Judah then seizes the responsibility and steps up and says, We've got to do something about this or the family's going to die. And now Judah stands before his father and pleads with him one more time. And he says, We've got to go. The only way we can go is if we take Benjamin with us because the man will not let us see his face. We will not gain entrance to him. You can kid, you know, Simeon. He's never coming home unless you let us take Benjamin back down to Egypt with us because that was a stipulation that the man had said. So they still don't know who this is. We're not even told that they know his name, zaphath Panea, that he was given when Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt, second in command under him. So as chapter 43 opens, we encounter yet again how severe the famine was. It was sore in the land, according to verse number 1. And this has now driven the family to consider what are we going to do. Uh, There's a philosopher, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. He draws a distinction between the sins of covetousness and envy. I mentioned to you that it was envy that drove Joseph's brothers to cast him in a pit because of the coat of many colors. Listen to what Cornelius Plantinga Jr. said. He said, Envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods, but the envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who's been blessed. Think about Joseph's brothers. Oh, here comes dad's favorite. Now he's got the coat of many colors. That tells the whole world Joseph is the favorite. Well, now that favoritism has been passed on to Benjamin because Joseph has shielded, or Jacob has shielded him from going down into Egypt. Now two years until the pangs of his stomach and the hunger pangs have driven him to give ear where he wouldn't listen to Reuben before. Now he's willing to listen to Judah because the situation is so severe. Envy has driven Joseph's brothers to their murderous deed. They wanted to kill him, and remember, it was Judah's idea. It was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. And now Judah is the one who stands before Dad and also barters once again to go get Simeon now from Egypt not knowing that he's really bartering for Joseph, for the reuniting that's about to occur. And so what the brothers resented was Joseph having that coat of many colors. They resented his person even more than his possession of that coat. They resented him. What did Joseph do? He was simply born and listened to his dad and did what his dad said to do, and Joseph caught the flag for it. This is how bitter envy can be. And so they stripped him of that coat, they beat him, they tossed him in a pit and left him to die. One person said it like this, Envy's wreckage litters the biblical landscape. From Cain, who envied Abel, to Saul, who envied David. And indeed, the landscape of our own existence as well. The public infamies like the 1989 Iowa High School Love Triangle in which Miss Harvest Queen strangled Miss Homecoming with her leather belt for stealing her boyfriend. And there's also the hidden envies of the church that are sometimes seen in the halls of conventions or conferences in which one observer wrote, most of the conversation in the hotel rooms and the halls was characterized either by envy of those who were doing well or scarcely concealed delight for those who were doing poorly. I can relate to that. I've been to preacher's meetings before. And it's like, hey, how many are you running, brother? Why do you want to know? Because if I tell you I'm doing, you know, more than you, you're gonna say, "Oh, well, I guess I'm not doing as good as you are." Or if I tell you I'm running less, you can, "Hey, I must be doing all right because I'm not running as few as they are." Okay, I'm just—that's preachers for you. Okay, yeah, it happens at preachers' meetings. When when I go to a preachers' meeting, I go to try to be a blessing. I really do because it's not about how much you're running. I don't know if you caught uh, Brother Smith's uh, comment or not, but he says the most important growth we look for in a church. It's not, quote, how many are you running, brother? It's, how has your church grown spiritually? Where's the spiritual growth? Are people being saved? Are they being baptized? And are they being discipled? I didn't say, how many are? I said, are they? Then you're staying true to the mission. You're staying true to the call that God gave. And, I mean, just think about it. If every church had to have big numbers to be successful... Where would Jeremiah's congregation be if we're going to determine success by numbers? Okay, God has a plan and he's working it. Now, numbers are important. We have a whole book in the Bible named Numbers, right? Numbers are important to God. They matter to God. But we also can't get caught up in in it so much that we think success means we have to have big numbers. Because success might mean you make a difference in one person's life. And that's what God's given you to do. It might be two, it might be three, it might be ten, it might be a hundred. But God can use you to reach somebody else. And so we go and we multiply disciples. But envy, here. I draw your attention to this because in chapter 43, I think there's more than meets the eye. We have to connect the broader context and consider how envy has... Moved behind the scenes, not only in causing Joseph's brothers to do what they did to him back in chapter 37, but now Joseph is going to put a test before them. Have they changed? Have they matured at all? Have they come to a place where they've dealt with the bitterness in their heart? Do they have guilt? Is there remorse over what happened? surrounding the events with Joseph. So here's a test that Joseph is going to put on his brethren. And one thing that stood out to me from this passage that was a great comfort to my heart and a great edification to me personally is to read chapter 43 and put yourself in each person's shoes. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Here's a father who's been hurt time and time again, he, he knows his, the character of his sons. There's been enough. I mean, He has a father's intuition. He knows maybe not everything's above board. He's hesitant to send Benjamin, and I think rightfully so. Now granted, he was a little blind, I think, in what God was wanting to do, but he's flesh and blood, just like you and I. And to say that you would do better than Jacob in this scenario, <laughs> I don't know if we should go that far as to say I would have done such and such. No, but put yourself in his shoes. Now, he is growing in his faith. Granted, I think that as Wearsby pointed out in his commentary, there is some unbelief in Jacob's heart. And uh, if you you read um, the devotional commentary by Henry Morris, he made some comments about that as well, in that he pointed out the fact that from chapter 37, I believe, on up to right now, The only name that he's been known by is Jacob. And the first instance that Israel is used again during that time of of non-usage is right here because he makes a reference to El Shaddai. He makes a reference to God Almighty. Which goes back to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. So somewhere along the line, Jacob began to waver. And wonder, I mean, famine can do that to people. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Things aren't looking very good. Has God forgotten us? My prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling and they're not making it any further. Where is the Lord? He's supposed to be what? We haven't left Canaan. We've stayed in Canaan. And yet we've got to go to Egypt to get what we need. I don't want to send my son down there. I mean, the boys went down there last time and they made a big mess of it. They just aired everything out before... I mean, what are they going to say the next time they go down to him? Are things going to get even worse? How can I even think about letting Benjamin go? No way, I'm not going to... But then the famine pushes him and he listens to Judah and he says, so be it. I think he comes around to see a little bit of God's providence. He can't see the end of it all yet, but he finally says, peradventure, God Almighty would give you mercy. Put yourself... In his father's shoes, as he prays for his sons that are making this journey to go deliver not only Simeon, but deliver their family from famine. Jacob has to relinquish everything to God. Put yourself in Judah's shoes. I think Judah has grown quite a bit from the last time we saw him. in depth in chapter 38. But there's also a little bit of a play on words here in the sense in which he stands up and he promises to be a surety for Benjamin. Well, if you go back to chapter number 38, there was another thing that he, was, uh, he made a pledge for, he made a surety for, that didn't work out so well for his character. Yeah, remember the bracelets and the staff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And God worked a bad situation out there and worked it out for good, because through Tamar, in that whole scenario, we're going to have the line of Messiah. So God's going to bring salvation, regardless of how depraved our heart can be. And here, Judah says, I'll be surety. Maybe hearkening back to that tarnishment of his character in chapter 38. Now he begins to, to shine. And this is the beginning leading up to one of the the moments in Genesis where Judah is going to shine the most. Once they get down into Egypt, Judah is going to be the one to stand up and say, hold on, I put my neck on the line for Benjamin. And we are going to see a picture of Jesus Christ in Judah in, in that account where he stands up and makes intercession for his brother Benjamin. And it moves Joseph. So put yourself in Judah's shoes. Have we grown? Are we the same we used to be? Or have we grown in our life? Have we matured a little bit? Maybe hard times have, have, uh, have polished off some of the rough edges around us and we begin to sparkle like a gem through adversity. And now Judah begins to rise to prominence because one day through his lineage, all Israel will bow down to the king that will come from his loins. David, the greatest leader Israel would ever ever have besides Jesus Christ, will come from Judah. And Jacob prophesied that about Judah later on. But Judah has some growing to do. And here we see Judah really shining. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I knew a man one time that told me a story about how badly he was hurt because someone had come into his most intimate place of his life and stolen something of great value to him. Something that was more precious to him. You you couldn't put a price of money on this. And he knew exactly who did it, but he couldn't prove it. And the authorities, they were no help at all. All they could do was document what was gone. And then, after time passed, this uh, perpetrator decided he wanted to make his way back into, into this man's life. And the man and I talked, and he shared with me the grief of his heart and said, I just can't do it. I can't let him back around anything that's precious to me because of what he did before. And I went on to counsel and explain, you know, forgiveness is always available, but trust must be restored. Think about that as it applies to what Joseph is dealing with. Forgiveness, absolutely. No question about it. The brothers have been forgiven since before they even came to Egypt. I'm sure Joseph dealt with that before God years before they ever even showed up. They didn't have to ask for forgiveness because Joseph was already right with God in that perspective. And he had eyes to see what God was doing in and through their life. Forgiveness, no question about it. But trust, that's another issue. You see, to choose not to remember is to make the decision to not bring something up again. It doesn't mean you don't know it didn't happen. It means when it comes up, you're not going to be the one that brings it up again and reopen old wounds. All that was dealt with, forgiveness, it's under the blood, we're going to forget it, we're going to move on. But trust on the other hand. If you just blindly trust those that you forgive, you can expect to be hurt again and again and again. And if you let them into that inner circle, you can mark it down, you will probably, more than likely, 99 times out of 100, be taken advantage of again, and they will wipe their feet on you and not even think twice about it because, well, they'll forgive me 70 times 7. They're Christians. you know. They'll just turn the other cheek. They'll give the coat and the cloak. They'll go the extra mile. I can take advantage of them. I wish people weren't like that, but they are. And so, as I counseled with this person, I said, you know, forgiveness is one thing, but trust is another. Trust is... Must be rebuilt. There must be fruit meet for repentance. Fruit suitable that shows there's been a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that there's remorse over what they did to wrong you before. Joseph puts his brothers to a test to see, have they changed at all? Are they really sorry? Are they truly upset? And are they are they plagued in their conscience over what they did to me, or are they just the same old brothers? that I knew before I left home against my volition. Have they changed at all? Well, let's have a dinner party. Kind of reminds me, if you like to read, uh, maybe you like to read The Count of Monte Cristo, I don't know. That has a moral to it, by the way. Uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, if you've ever read that story, uh, this is a man who, by the end of it, he's wasted everything. All this great treasure he comes into, and he wastes it all trying to get revenge Joseph is not out for revenge. He's not wasting all of his substance just to try to get back at his brothers for what they did to him. No, it's it's the exact opposite. Joseph is testing his brothers. Let's have a dinner party and see if they've really changed. So he begins to put all the affairs in order. I'm sure he was expecting them to come back any time once the food ran out. And he was sure they'd have to have Benjamin with him because that was the stipulation he gave before. So Judah has a conversation with Dad, and Dad agrees to let him go under God's God's, uh, survey and God's providence will watch care. And they return, and now we see the reuniting of the brothers that they still don't know Joseph yet. But when they get there, they did what Dad said bring a gift. That was some Solomonic wisdom because a gift in the bosom would appease the the, the king, right? Uh, There's a proverb that says something to that effect. You bring a gift and it'll appease and it will make the wrath disappear that might be upon them because remember, they left and when they got halfway down the road, they looked in their sack and lo and behold, oh no, we're in trouble. What happened here? All our money is back and all the food and everything and it's going to look like we stole this stuff and that we went in to be be bad guys and we're going to have it in for us when we return. So they go back with twice as much money and a gift. Some of the gifts that they had, we read about them in uh, in the verses here, what they were going to bring. He says um, they took the present, double money, and also some of the other things, the, the fruits, the best fruits, a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. Now there was a word of caution that was issued in one of the books I read about this passage, and I thought, you know, that's a good thought about preaching. So for those who are interested in studying how to preach and teach, uh, let me encourage you, don't just take a little phrase like this, uh, where he says, He uh, Take it uh, take it in your hand. He says, a little balm and a little honey. There have been preachers that have taken that phrase, a little honey, and basically gone off on this big springboard to talk about all these things that have nothing to do with the text, and they apply that, take a little honey to whatever they want, and they're imposing their ideas on the text rather than getting their message from the text. So that's a side note if you're taking notes. You just want to hold on to those things. Don't impose what... You want to preach on the text, just let the text preach from itself and uh, be a good expositor in that way. So they take this, this present down to appease, appease Joseph because they don't want to be in trouble with him. They would have been in trouble. He would have been able to take them as slaves. And so I want you to notice as we get into this, the fact that Judah stands up and takes responsibility He's going to help rescue their family. This is in verses 1 through 15. He's going to rescue their family from the famine. He's going to rescue their testimony because he's going to listen to his dad and they're going to take a gift down and they're going to they're going to pay homage and they're going to say it was an oversight. We didn't mean to do this. We've brought all the money back plus enough to buy more and oh by the way we brought you a gift too because we're good guys. <laughs> we didn't do this on purpose. So he's going to save not only their family from the famine, he's going to save their testimony from the tarnishment. He's going to save their brother uh, Simeon from the prison and from captivity in Egypt. And we see that in verses 1-5. through As Judah stands up, we note that Jacob gives him a bold rebuke based on a false assumption of negligence. And I pointed this out last time together, but if you notice, Jacob just assumes that they went down there and aired out all their laundry before Joseph. Why would you tell him all of this stuff? We didn't tell him everything. He pulled it out of us. It's like he knew before we even asked. And he asked us specifically, do you have this and do you have that? How could we say no? And so Jacob had his understanding corrected and then he's willing to let them go down. And the risks of responsibility are assumed With that responsibility, He's willing to take the risk. So as we apply it to where we are, I want you to think about a responsibility maybe that the Lord would have you to take. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but you need to take that extra measure and take 150% of the blame and let Christ shine through it. And be willing to lay it all on the line. And take the necessary risks that involve taking this kind of responsibility because other lives are at stake. It's not about you. It's about God's plan being furthered. Judah can't see the end from the beginning, but he's following along and he's taking responsibility. Secondly, I would point out to you that as we deal in this world, we must, we must, we have to deal with integrity. I uh, learned a very good definition of integrity when I worked for Brinks. And I used to repeat it often. Maybe you've heard me say it before. Honesty is telling the truth. Integrity is telling the truth even when it hurts. For instance, one day I show up to the vault and I have to hand in a a, a sealed bag that has shredded $20 bills in it. I have to have integrity of this. What happened to that money? Well, the ATM machine ate it up. And here's what's left. Sorry, it's not very salvageable, but that's integrity you see honesty would just be ah the machine chewed it up but you know there were other other atm handlers that had uh, what we would call sticky fingers you know what i mean and every every once in a while a 20 would just kind of disappear into thin air and nobody ever knew where it went honesty is telling the truth integrity is telling the truth even when it hurts There was one messenger that I was aware of was being under investigation for a disappearance of up to the tune of $90,000 because he was working on ATMs. And be sure to mark it down, those that are supervising eventually catch on because they run the numbers. And those who have integrity, they notice, hey, you know, the sticky fingers issues doesn't seem to be applying to this scenario because they can take and they average those things, you see. And the ones who do have sticky fingers or milking the clock or however you want to apply it. You see, honesty is telling the truth. Integrity is telling the truth even when it hurts. And we must deal with integrity. As Joseph's brothers return to Egypt, they do so with integrity. They take double money back, enough to restore what what would have been assumed stolen and to pay for the food that they are going to need to continue forward. They're trying to clear their name. And I would just remind you that the Bible encourages us to abstain from all appearance of evil. And here these brothers are doing their very best to do that. They don't want to look like evil evil people coming into into Egypt to take advantage of a bad situation. So in verses 16 to 22, we see them in their dealing with integrity, abstaining from all appearance of evil. We, it was an oversight. We didn't mean to do this. And as they did that, I want to point out to you a principle in Scripture that is some more Solomonic wisdom. Because in Proverbs, it says that if you'll deal in this kind of way, you will obtain favor with God and men. And here, that's exactly what happens. Joseph's brothers, because of their integrity to lay everything out, No matter the cost. I mean, they could be arrested, they could be taken and and made slaves, they're going to come clean, and they're going to do it right. And because of that, they received favor with God and men. This is powerful. In verses 23-25, to we read the account, and he said, Peace be to you. Fear not. Who is this? Oh, this is who they're having to confess to. They come back, and this is... Joseph's servant. He had already given them instructions. Now, get this, because you need to understand the culture. Here come some Canaanites, Hebrew speaking people. And they come into Egypt, trotting on their camels. They come up to Joseph's servant, and the first word they hear from an Egyptian, nonetheless, is shalom. They hear peace in their own language. They hear a greeting that says maybe they're not as mad at us as we thought. Maybe things are going to be all right. He's not coming out with a band to arrest us. He's actually saying peace to us. This is this is amazing. Peace. Shalom be to you. Fear not. Hey, you don't have anything to worry about. Now, they've already confessed, all right? He says uh, oh sir, when we indeed came down at the first time to buy food, it came to pass when we came to the inn, we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of a second our money was, it was a full weight and, and we brought it again into your hand, it's right here, we've got it all we know, we're in big trouble and we have other money too <laughs> he says, it's alright, peace you don't have to worry, you don't have to be afraid now notice what he goes on to say your Elohim your God and the God of your father, Jacob, Israel, hath given you, maybe you want to star this word or underline this word or take a note of this word. Hath given you what? Treasure. He goes on to say, I had your money. Here's how. Maybe I could put it to you in a way that would make a little more sense. He says, oh, oh that's all right. You don't need to worry about that. I already, I already balanced the books. I got, I got your money. Whatever you found in your bag, well, that's just treasure from God for you. You guys are clear. No, you're, you're even. Your account is settled. It's been reconciled. Let that sink in. What did Jesus do for us? My debt's been paid. My account with God's been reconciled. I've been delivered. And yet, His righteousness is put to me, and I say, I've got money in the bank with God. What treasure. I open my sack as a sinner and I find the righteousness of Christ. Oh, what treasure! Oh, your books, I've already counted all that. It's all reconciled. Whatever was in your sack, that must have been from your God. God must have done that for you. Now you see, there's some other things working that the brothers don't know about. Joseph was privy to all this. He knew. He's the one that told them to put the money in the sack. And so Jesus Christ as well, He was privy to our sin debt. And He knew it all. And He knew the price that would be paid. And He paid it for us. What a beautiful picture. Obtaining favor with God and with men. And so then, they have their peace. And then I can just imagine the flood of relief that comes over their soul. And they say, alright, it's time to get ready for lunch. It's going to be a lunch like you've never seen. They're going to feast in the middle of a famine. They're going to not even worry about the famine that's going on by the time they sit down to table with Joseph. And they say, okay, it's time to get this this ready. We've got this present to give to Him. And notice how they obtained favor with God and men. Simply because they were willing to put their necks on the line and deal with integrity. Taking responsibility. Are we willing to take responsibility? Are we willing to deal with integrity? And thirdly, I want to show you from this passage how all of these things can lead us to rejoicing without jealousy taking responsibility, dealing with integrity, and now notice as we draw down to a close with everything, rejoicing without jealousy in verses 26 to the end of the chapter. As things begin to unfold, we realize there is something greater working here. You talk about dreams being fulfilled. Hey, this is a passage that speaks to fulfillment of dreams. We read how Joseph's brothers came and did obedience to Him, not once, not twice. They bowed down before Him three times, at least, we read about in this passage. Fulfilled dreams. Remember chapter 37? Yeah, Joseph had a dream. And here, he sees that dream become a reality before his very eyes. When you serve God and you follow Him, and you're willing to walk with integrity and take responsibility, in following your Lord and Savior and all that He did. There's dreams that we have. There's hopes that we have that one day we dream about being fulfilled. I'm telling you, if you will count on God, one day you will see those dreams fulfilled right before your very eyes. I'm talking about dreams that are promises from Scripture now. I'm not saying dreams about that next Lamborghini you want. I'm talking about dreams of heaven and home and paradise and sin being eradicated out of this world and being able to serve the Lord with gladness, entering into His presence. I'm talking about seeing those that you pray for fervently and labor over coming to Christ before your very eyes and seeing those things because God answers prayer. We see that in this passage as well. Not only do we see that following God helps helps us to see dreams, godly dreams I should say, come to fulfillment. We also see that prayers can be answered. You remember when we were talking about good old Jacob there, who now he's back to Israel because he's he's re- regaining that faith that maybe has wavered as old Jacob. He's known as the deceiver as Israel. He's known as the prince with God, has power with God. Now Israel's back on the scene with a little bit more hope in his bosom, that maybe God's doing something more in this. Remember, he said a prayer over his boys before they left. He said, peradventure, God Almighty would show you... You remember the word? What's the word? Mercy. 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 And Genesis is a fun book because in the book of Genesis, we get to encounter many, many firsts. This is one of them. This is the first time that this lemma shows up in the Bible. That's just the fancy word for the root of it, where it comes from, okay? The first time this word mercy appears is right here. And notice who's being invoked when mercy shows up. God Almighty. El Shaddai. The covenant-keeping God. He is the one that we plead with for mercy. Now the word is translated in this very chapter again. But it's not translated as the word mercy. You have to fast forward now down to where Joseph encounters Benjamin. They come and they sit down to meet. They're getting ready to eat. And the brothers are getting ready to give the present. And Joseph asks, hey, how's dad doing? How's your dear old dad? Is he well? Is he alive? Yeah, yeah, dad's fine. Is this the son you told me about? Is this your brother? Is this Benjamin? And right after that, Joseph pronounces a benediction blessing on Benjamin, and he almost can't contain himself. He has to exit before he loses composure. And he has to go somewhere and, and regroup and regather. If you look at the text, you'll see the word that's translated, mercy, when Jacob prayed over his sons before they left. Now, the prayer is answered because... Joseph, is said here, he made haste, in verse 30, for his bowels did yearn. Do you see that? His bowels did yearn. That's the same word. Mercy. This is a deep, deep movement of compassion. Something that can't be contained. We talk about a burning in our heart for somebody. You remember when the disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with Christ and they said, Did not our hearts burn within us? Now we understand that as being up here, but to a Hebrew person and to someone who's in an oriental culture like this, you've got to get deeper than that. The bowels of mercies that Paul writes about, this is this is something that moves you so deeply, you can't you almost can't contain it. And I imagine it took some time for Joseph to recompose himself. But do you see the connection? Israel prayed that God would show mercy. And here, it's almost like Moses is connecting both of those ideas because of the same Hebrew word, Joseph's bowels, didn't And what did he pray for Benjamin? He says, may God have compassion, be gracious on thee, so the compassionate mercy is seen. Hey, I want to tell you, when you serve God, you are willing to take responsibility of following Christ when you serve the Lord and you deal with integrity, getting favor with God, amen, you can mark it down. Your dreams will be fulfilled in following the Lord. The desires of your heart, you will see them come to pass. He will give thee the desires of thine heart. Your prayers will be answered right before your eyes. And here a father's prayer comes to fulfillment. He asked God to do it. God did it. And He did it in such an abundant way. Such an abundant way And then I want you to notice here under this idea of rejoicing without jealousy, how we can receive our blessings with thanksgiving and with contentment. Remember, I pointed out to you, Joseph is giving his brothers a a severe test right here. Have they changed at all? Is there any difference? Can I begin to trust them a little bit? No, he's not all the way out of the woods with them, because there's a greater test yet coming where we talked about Judah's going to stand forth and he's going to put his neck on the line, but right here is kind of the beginning of it all, where he begins to test them how they changed. So notice what he does. I always wondered, why in the world? You know, is it just because Benjamin was was Rachel's son? Was it just because they were full brothers and not half brothers? I mean, why would he give him five plates instead of one like the other brothers? Why five? Why right here? Why now? Why at this time? Because it's a test. Have they changed it all? You see, the favoritism was on him before, and he was Rachel's. Now that dad thinks he's gone and off the scene, all that favoritism would pass to Benjamin, no doubt. He knew his dad. He knew his brothers. And so he's going to find out, are they the same? So as they all sit down to eat, he's going to, in essence, put on Benjamin that coat of many colors with five plates of mess. Five times as much. So what will the reaction be? Will it be, well, how come he gets more? It's not fair. We have a lot of two-year-olds in our house. I see that kind of stuff all the time. We have middle schoolers and high schoolers and we have immature people. I see that stuff all the time. Okay, let's not just throw the kids under the bus. We have sometimes some church members that get in a fuss over immature stuff like this. But Joseph's trying to find out have they changed? Are they going to be jealous over him and be envious over him because I bless him more? But they passed this test with flying colors. You know why? Because I had you read that phrase out loud with me when we began, we began the end of the chapter. It says, What? They drank and were merry with Him. There was not a single sentiment of remorse that I didn't get as much as Him. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. It just might surprise you what the Lord hath done. So instead of looking at what you didn't get, or how much better somebody else appears to be doing than you, before you start comparing and contrasting what you have with what somebody else has been blessed with, Why don't you just sit down, get right with God, and say, Thank you, Lord. You've been so good to me. I'm not worried about what somebody else has. I'm thankful for what's on my plate. Whether it's one mess or five messes. Hey, with five messes, guess what? You got more dishes to clean. I'm just being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic. But even with one, there was no sentiment of remorse. I can't believe how good God's been. Now they can sit down and whereas before they might have burned inside with envy, why does He get five and I only get one? Now they can sit down and say, look, He's got five! That's awesome! This is wonderful! Look how good He's being blessed! And look, I've got this too! And we're all able to be merry together. They pass the test. And so Joseph's not done with them. He's going to send them away and catch them in the act and bring them back and say, now I'm going to take Benjamin. But that's where Judah's going to stand up. So how is it tonight? What is it in your life that God might be asking you or moving upon you, calling you to take responsibility for and serving Him? There's going to be some risk associated with that. Have you counted the cost? Have you sat down and done that to make sure that you can do what God's calling you to take responsibility for? What is that responsibility? You have a responsibility to protect your family and the church family and the testimony and the cause of Christ. You have a responsibility to take the Gospel out so that those who are in shackles and in prison can be set free You have responsibility as a follower of the Lord. You also need to understand some people aren't going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. They might have assumptions about you that are incorrect. You give that to God and stay meek. And when it comes time to stand up, you make sure the truth be known. Just like Judah did. And you're fully ready to take the risks assumed with the responsibility of following Christ. As you go forward for Him, remember, you need to deal with integrity. Maintain your integrity. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Stay right with God, stay right with men, and you'll gain favor in the sight of God and man. And God will bless you for it. And by the time you come to the end of your journey, you'll be able to rejoice with no jealousy, with no envy in your heart. You'll be able to sit down and be married because, hey, your dreams and following the Lord, all the desires of your heart, He gave those to you. And He blessed you and you saw your dreams fulfilled. Not only that, He answered your prayers. When you asked Him to do something, He did it exceeding abundantly above all you could ask or think. And He has filled your plate to goodness. He has filled your plate with blessing. And you can say with the psalmist, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You can receive the blessings of the Lord with thanksgiving, with gratitude in your heart, with contentment for the things you have, because godliness with contentment is great gain.